round welcome to Cancria, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. My name is Sebastian. Now, earlier this week, I had conducted an interview with Bridget, one half of the incredibly talented Moscow apartment. We'll be hearing the track Awful People uh, a little later in the show. But when I recorded this interview with with Bridget, I was not aware of the uh, forthcoming report, uh, which is going to make up the bulk of this week's show. So that interview will be uh, in uh, in the latter half of the show. But uh, mm-hmm. so we have that to look forward to talking to Bridget from Moscow Apartment about uh, addressing climate change as a, a young emerging LGBT musician. But in the meantime, we need to discuss something which has. It's been painful to read this report. Okay. I'm referring to the missing and missed report of the independent civilian review into missing persons investigations. This report was empowered by the Police Services Board for uh, Toronto Police Service, and it was headed by the Honourable Gloria J. Epstein, the independent reviewer, along with her uh, councils and staff. Awful man that is Bruce MacArthur, Mm-hmm. The man behind the MacArthur murders in 2010 through to 2017, 2018, when he was finally arrested. Yeah, finally arrested is the, the proper term because he was sort of like mini arrested about five or six times at least. Yeah, and we'll be getting into that. And that's what's made reading this so frustrating. Now, well, it's all over the place, though. That's to me, that's the most interesting thing. So something I want to I want to really put up front is that. The team that that wrote this were very compassionate uh, towards everyone involved, towards the police, the chief, the investigators, the board, the community, everyone. They're trying to understand why they came to the conclusions they did. And many, many times throughout the report, I mean, it's 800 pages, and I've only had time to read about 50 of them. Uh, I jumped around a bit. Uh, she often said things like, you know, given the information they had at the time or given the information that was in the system at the time, given the procedures, given this, given that, that certain individuals did as good a job as could be done or certain individuals uh, didn't even follow procedure. Like, it's completely inconsistent. She has a lot of compassion saying, like, I don't know if it was reasonable given the information they had on on hand to detain this person or that person for longer than they did. Given the evidence at the time, it seemed reasonable. And even then, she still generated about 250 pages worth of recommendations. Like it was even starting from a position of not, you know, hindsight, you know, what could they have done better, but rather in the moment, given what we could determine from what they knew at the time, could they have done better then? And it still comes up lacking. She does have very positive things to say about individuals, but then she says it shouldn't come down to this specific individual looked at the policy and said, eh, that's kind of out of date. I'm going to do what seems better. Because there were individual investigators where she was like, they did everything right. They did everything yeah. right by every measure. So what's interesting is she sings the praises of Peel Police. <laughs> and that's not even the one she's reviewing. And I'll get to that in a few moments, because I think when she talks about, when she compares directly Peel Police's investigation of one of the missing uh, men compared to TPS's investigation, it is mm. night and day. And we should emphasize, like, if you are currently outside of the Toronto area, which is probably almost all of our listeners, 
this is still of interest to you because a lot of the conclusions that she came to in the 200 plus summary was missing persons investigations in Canada in general are broken. And that some of this is squarely on the Toronto police. Some of it's on um, the chief or the, actually something, uh, one of the things she said there that I, I found was so interesting was that individually, the investigators, the chief, the board, and another group that she mentioned, I can't remember which, kind of did the best they could on their own, but they're not on their own. They're part of a team. And if they all spoke to each other and actually cooperated and communicated openly, they could have done, like, this could have been ended uh, maybe anywhere from five to 15 years earlier than it did, that it was just everybody kind of believed themselves to be in a silo, that there was a fundamental communications breakdown and that this kind of thing is pretty common in Canada. That one of the issues was that when they tried to communicate with the RCMP, the RCMP were like, eh, missing persons, you know, there's a system, go look it up on the computer. But if the computer's out of date, then they're kind of like, eh. Well, I wanna, I wanna stop you right there because the, the RCMP was not blamed for this. And, and no, I'll, get no. into, I'll get into the systems piece there. But before we dive into the report, I wanna talk to you, Seb, because I think you're in the room. When the Bruce MacArthur story broke, yeah, I was still a active participant of the LGBT liaison committee mm-hmm. at the Ottawa Police Service, and we learned through media reporting, not from the police, mm. that uh, Bruce MacArthur, who was a qualified landscaper, had travelled in his work in the early years, travelling around the country, um, uh, you know, doing gardening. With that being said, one of the first things that we did was we asked the Ottawa Police Service if they were able to identify any cold cases or missing Mm. persons cases from the Ottawa Valley area that would have been tied to this. And they said that they rely on a series of uh, software Mm -hmm. that is provincial, provincial software that allows them to identify um, whether or not there's similarities. Mm -hmm. But what's really stunning me in this report is that the Toronto Police Service seems to have aversion to documenting anything that can be shared provincially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was one of the things that I saw that uh, the investigators were like fantastic investigators if it were the 1940s yeah. and these were gumshoe detectives. Somebody said, she said at one point that one of them was managing the case through an Excel sheet on a shared drive. Yeah. You know, what helped to sink the case yeah. was they identified a time frame from when Kinsman was uh, went missing. There was a four or five hour gap and the lead investigator immediately tasked somebody, go get the video. Within a couple of days, boom, they got the video. Mm. But nobody thought to check it for two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. And in this video is it van <laughs> that indicated they're now primary suspect. And in those two or three weeks, another young man escaped with his life Mm -hmm. um, because Bruce MacArthur's roommate came home early. So I think about that conversation we had with the Ottawa Police Service and the conversation that many people had around the country when Bruce MacArthur happened, asking, how can we know that this isn't happening here? Yeah. How could they have known? I would be alarmed if he came this far east, but from everything that I've learned, not just through this case, but through other cases as well, about how underreported, underdocumented, and underinvestigated missing persons are in general in Canada, 
Uh, I mean, even when you get into famous cases like uh, Paul Bernardo in the early 90s, a lot of that was media driven. If there were a separate, unrelated, undocumented serial killer in the Ottawa Valley that no one's noticed before because these things are poorly recorded, that wouldn't alarm me. Uh, and that that's not even a reflection on the Ottawa police. That's just the reflection on documenting missing persons in Canada in general. This is a, a system-wide problem. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there are individual jurisdictions like, I don't know, like PEI or something, where they got it nailed. But they're an island in a sea of mediocrity that were kind of everything that I, I, I keep learning more about this. And it seems like these are really good investigators for the context of the 1960s. But like now, <laughs> like they did everything fantastically if technology didn't exist, which it's interesting is you mentioned the Paul Bernardo case, you know, because I think people are somewhat familiar with that one. Oh, yeah. Well, the province created the violent crime linkage analysis system to deal with this. Yeah input details about your case and if there's mm -hmm. anything similar to anything else mm -hmm. even in the same city mm -hmm. uh it'll it'll flag it up yeah. you know the the coordinators for the vicas system the violent crime internet uh, linkage analysis system the yeah. senior officials at vicas asked tps for you know we know you're doing this stuff please put it in the system and TPS ignored them. Of all the recommendations, again, there's 200 pages and I haven't had time to read them all. But of all the recommendations that I read, the one that bowled me over the most was hire one full-time staff member. <laughs> that was like, that was a recommendation, which implies that they, and apparently they've never had a single full-time staff member in their investigation department in Toronto. And this is not uncommon in Canada in general, to have their missing persons unit or just their investigations unit just be like a bunch of detectives that get assigned things and when they have the time they get around to doing stuff. And one of the reasons why, like you and I both have familiarity with the police, we know that uh, part of the, the anti-corruption strategy they have is every five to seven years, uh, officers will transfer so that like, you know, if you're in the drugs department, then people can't bribe you to overlook stuff. Like it, it, shifting around has strengths and weaknesses and this is the strategy they, they've chosen that's fine but uh as the permanent record they have civilian staff who are there for 15 20 years and they have a memory they'll be like oh this looks weirdly like something we saw eight years ago and that's part of their function not only just filling out the paperwork and making sure the police sit down and input the stuff in the system but also to be that living memory they have nothing like that whatsoever because one of the things they found in the investigation of this case was how transparently, obviously similar individual events in the timeline were, where even like even without technology, if you just had a full-time staff member in the audience uh, in the office, they would have said, "Oh, that sounds weirdly like this thing happened six you years ago." You say that you say that, Seb, but I have to disagree, and I think the evidence disagrees. Nearly every other police service, OPP. RCMP, a mm. whole bunch of other ones, use a program called Power Case. Yes. It is information tracking for cases. Now, uh, for example, you know, no data was uploaded to Power Case, this sort of uh, information management software, mm -hmm. because the senior staff at the Toronto Police Service just don't like it. Mm. They just, they don't particularly like Power Case. Power Case is also used by 
every other police service. Yeah. And it's funny you mention about institutional memory. One of the people who first interviewed Bruce MacArthur in 2006, but then she also shows up later, almost five, 10 years later in the PRISM investigation, which is the one that eventually cracked the case on Bruce MacArthur. And she just so happened to remember that she had previously interviewed Bruce MacArthur. Yeah. Because when that in, when the prison investigation ran the files on Bruce MacArthur, there were no files because mm. at no point in the previous 10 years had anyone written anything down. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. Is, it is astonishing. The cacophony yeah. of errors is what I think I called it before. And yep. I stand by that more than ever. It, it, is, it is shameful for oh, the yeah. Charlie Police Service. Oh, yeah. For sure, yeah. It, it, I don't know, it, it's almost like, I mean, you know that I love watching low-budget action movies from the 70s and 80s, and that trope of the chaotic police station where, like, the chief of police, for some reason, anyone can walk into his office, and uh, he likes to yell at people, you're off the case, give me your badge and gun, and, and everyone's just hanging out by the, the coffee machine, pouring whiskey in their coffee and chain-smoking while they're at their desk, like, it kind of sounds like that's still what Toronto is, except you can't smoke indoors anymore. Like it, it's, yeah. it has that feel to it of being this like horrible, like what a studio executive in Hollywood thinks a police department looks like. It kind of is what's going on in Toronto. It's very peculiar. I want to zero in on some parts of this report and kind of get your reaction to them, Seb. So okay. in 2013, they launched Project Houston. Uh, essentially, this Swiss informant alleged that there was a cannibal ring uh, floating around and somebody, possibly Bruce MacArthur, had uh, eaten someone, okay. possibly one of the earliest victims. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, they did identify somebody in this ring. They weren't cannibals, but this other guy ended up getting dinged for child pornography anyway. All that being said, you know, but, and I, I'll read directly here. By the end of the interview with MacArthur, Project Houston had information that he had significant connection to all three missing men. This connection should have raised a big red flag for the investors, prompting, at the very least, focused scrutiny on him. The mm. fact that in 2001, he had attacked a gay man in the village without provocation, and for this reason was banned from the village for three years, was important. In 2017, which is four years later, during Project Prison, the lead investigator discovered the 2003 convictions and underlying facts and recognized their significance. It is astonishing that they, they just seem to, all of these interactions happen completely siloed. One of the other things that Toronto Police claimed was they're understaffed. There's just no staff. Okay. So in 2010, we saw the, the, the disappearance of Skander Navratnam. Mm. And the police immediately seized uh, the electronic equipment from Skandaratnam, uh, Mr. Navaratnam, as a result of this investigation. Mm -hmm. This makes sense. It's reasonable, makes a lot of sense. But his computer wasn't analyzed until two years later. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until, um, what are we looking at, seven years later that they realized that he had been messaging Bruce MacArthur under the Silver Fox Toronto uh, email account. Right. Well, the judge who wrote the case said that uh, it feels like they may have fallen to the no body, no crime uh, approach to police work. Mm. 
because that, that is a challenge with missing persons. Obviously, this is not the case here, but it is a real thing that happens when, when somebody's accused of being a missing person and they disappeared for unrelated reasons. Like on their own volition, they disappeared for unrelated reasons. It's more common than you think, but it's not common enough for the police to go, oh, he's probably just trying to avoid his taxes. Like it, it's not that common but it is a possibility and they really do need to double check. Like if, if there's no, I mean, this is one of the issues that, that brought it up with, um, Oh, I can't remember. There was uh, two of the men who disappeared in 2017, their bills were paid. They had no major debts. Um, they, they had known responsibilities. One of them had a small dog that he walked every day, um, completely disappeared. Like there is no reason for this person to be, one of those folks who just skips town because they want a new life. Like, this is not one of those cases. This is a clean cut instance of this is a missing person, you know? And, and that one, I remember being the one that tipped a lot of people off that like, this is serious. We need to look at this seriously. And it's really peculiar. Like the, 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 the whole instance, like both the, the, the kind people who wrote this document and a lot of people surrounding it are like, okay, yes, we get it. Maybe you're understaffed, but <laughs> this was this one case, this one record, this one moment. The the fact that he had like a restraining order against a part of town, like that's you know, these are it's not it's not just that. I want to zero in on another example. Yeah, this one relates to Basil Faisi, who went missing in December 2010. Mm. Uh, I'll read from the report here. Peel's investigation, because he was a Peel resident, investigation of Mr. Faisi's disappearance was superior to the one that Toronto Police conducted in 2010 and 2011 in relation to Mr. Navratnam. For example, Peel reached out to a variety of ways to the gay community and more specifically to the Salam Queer Muslim Community Centre attempting to uh, enlist assistance in its search. In January 2011, Constable Marsot learned through another Peel officer that Mr. Navaratnam had gone missing from the village. This information was purely fortuitous. Mm. The Toronto police had taken no steps to ensure that other regional services were even aware of the disappearance. Later on, it goes on to say, she suspected the cases were connected. She reached out to the Toronto police on three occasions. One message went unanswered. An officer responded to a message by saying Toronto Police would look into it, but there's no evidence that anyone did. And finally, she emailed the officer in charge to advise him the cases were probably connected. And that third time, there was no response. And then finally, uh, later in the last paragraph, she notes, the failure of Toronto Police to identify the potential connection between these cases, one handed to them on a platter, represents a failure of epic proportions oh yeah and i am i'm directly quoting that and i've highlighted it in bold because for me it's this i just i there's no words for the incompetence you don't see the term epic proportions very often in official documentation like <laughs> there's there's something special going on here and i mean this obviously in a bad way but you don't see expressions like that often like this <sighs> There is Toronto, a whole lot. Toronto Police has improved. I think this showed the glaring gaps in Yeah, yeah. And, in, and in the fact GPS. that some of that was internal when when the, the few people who were sort of like reviewed as being competent and they did everything right when they learned what all their peers were up to, vis-a-vis -vis what their peers were not up to, 
they were just embarrassed into action like oh my god what is wrong like what is going on here so th there was a degree of that um the Toronto police didn't even have a checklist or conventional steps to be taken when investigating such disappearances I mean that says it all really like mm -hmm. every time someone goes missing it's almost at the whim of the officer in charge as to what gets done I mean that goes back to my 1980s cop movie analogy and it, it is I, I do like the fact that she does take the time to acknowledge those who did their damn job properly yeah and even when jobs weren't done properly for example in the bruce MacArthur interview um you know she says that the interviewee did you know did the best they could but yeah. there was and i quote no meaningful supervision of the interview or what was learned from it that took place it was not uploaded into PowerCase and was not communicated to the Project Houston analyst. So its significance was buried. And it may have so, been they didn't even know that Project Houston was happening. A lot of what has come up in this report is when she talks to officers and they're like, Project what? <laughs> Project who? <laughs> yeah, it is astonishing. You're right. It really... And a part and, of me is like, Toronto Police Service is massive, right? It's yeah, yeah. Big police service. On the one but, hand, there's a lot of projects, there's a lot of officers. Yeah. But all is, three of these investigations happened in the same detachment. Yeah, if you're in missing persons, you should know. You should be like, oh, I saw that written on a memo somewhere. Like, I'm not on that case, but I saw it. Because people tend to check in, you would think. I don't know. Should, should we, should we, we've been at this for a bit. Should we take a break? Yeah, let's take a break. We are going to jump to our first track. This is uh, Better Optimist by Jen Newcom. And uh, just after that, we'll be playing the interview that I did earlier today, uh, earlier this week, sorry, with Bridget from Moscow Apartment. We'll be back just after this. to be more like myself these days feels like pulling teeth but with a razor blade cutting imperfections as thick as my skull it's bent out of shape and my brain's all numb while my reflection smiles 
and welcome back to Cancri, home of Canada's Korean media. I am very excited and thrilled that you're able to meet with me. Uh, we have one half of the extremely talented Moscow apartment. Uh, regular listeners will have heard uh, a few of your tracks played over the last few weeks. Uh, Bridget, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Now, we touched base on something completely unrelated to queer folks playing music. It was, uh, <laughs> I mean, somewhat unrelated. It was around the uh, Canada, uh, Music Declares Canada. Can you tell me a bit about what motivated you to uh, engage with this and, and what it's all about? Yeah, so um, Music Declares Canada is an organization trying to connect um, Canadian musicians and climate activists um, and help musicians find ways to make their touring more sustainable, but also just get involved in climate activism in general uh more and i got involved well I've, I've been involved in climate stuff on and off since i was a kid um my mom worked at greenpeace when i was younger um so i've been very aware of climate stuff uh since then i've gone to lots of protests with her um since i was really little and the first concert i think i ever played was a greenpeace um fundraiser i covered a Joni mitchell song because um, she had played at a Greenpeace fundraiser decades before and they'd found the recordings and they had a bunch of Canadian artists cover songs um, from that original fundraiser. So yeah, I've been involved in climate since I was uh, really young and it's always been something that I've really cared about and been aware of. Um, but it's not something that I have been super, super active in um, just because I've been busy with school and music and being a teenager. Um, but I got really inspired by all the like youth climate strikes and the Fridays for our future um, events and organizing all over the world. And uh, yeah, I just, I felt like I needed to get involved. And when I found out about Music Declares and Climate Live, these things that were an intersection of music and climate, I was like, well, this is something that I can help with. Um, you know, I can actually put my knowledge and my like working experience to words. Um, so yeah, I got involved and I've helped start up the Canadian branch of Climate Live and Music Declares Emergency. Excellent. You know, I think you're, you you hit the nail on the head. I think in 2019, the, uh, you know, the, those Friday protests um, sort of, you know, really pioneered by, by Greta Thunberg, um, really, I think, invigorated the next generation to, to take this seriously. And what has jumped out at me, and I think you and, and the Music Declares Emergency is a perfect example of this. You know, for the longest time, it was organizations such as Greenpeace who are focusing on the climate. But now it seems to be permeating everybody. You know, businesses are taking a look at this. The music industry, such as what you're working on, is taking a look at this. Do you think that uh, addressing the, the massive impacts on climate has gone a bit mainstream? Yes, I think it has gone mainstream. And I think that is both a good thing and a bad thing. Um, I think it's really important that everyone is aware of this massive issue that really threatens us all. Um, because like time is running out. And this is something that we should all care about. But then I think you also have issues of greenwashing. Um, and it kind of being seen as a trend. And so I think it's really important 
for while you know all these businesses and people are embracing like metal straws and stuff like that i think it's really important to still remember that this is a huge issue that we we really need to pressure our governments worldwide to um to take action on it and you know make legislature um that helps protect the climate and so i think it is mainstream but we need to make it more of like a urgent kind of thing i think that reflects quite nicely the the declaration the sort of music declares a climate and ecological emergency just for our listeners sake i'll, I'll kind of read off you know read off some of them and you know first one being we call on governments and media institutions to tell the truth about the climate and ecological emergency we call on governments to act now to reverse biodiversity loss and reach zero uh, net zero greenhouse gases no later than 2030. We recognize that the emergency is driven from global injustice and work towards systemic change to protect life on Earth. And uh, acknowledging the impact of the music industry's practices and committing to take urgent action. So how has this changed how you're making music? And like, how have, how have you adapted to this uh, declaration? Well, I, I want to say we've done a lot, but, um, you know, my band has been kind of put on pause uh, because of COVID for uh, the most part, but um, we're definitely, we're definitely trying to make individual changes. Um, we are looking into um, records that aren't made um, from petroleum uh, products. Um, uh, we're trying to find more sustainable um, ways to source merch. Um, We've talked about doing carbon offsets um, when we have to fly, because unfortunately that is just something you have to do as a musician um, when you have a busy schedule. Uh, we have talked about having a climate, well, we're in the process of signing a record deal and we are trying to get a climate clause in our contract um, that's basically just says we want to, with the label, we want to do everything the most sustainable way possible um, when options are available. So yeah, we're definitely trying to make changes um, on our personal band level. But I also think something that's really important to remember, especially because I've had many conversations with musicians, is that while individual actions are important, um, you can't, not everyone can afford to, you know, be the most eco-friendly person and make sure everything is the most sustainable option possible. And so doing that while you where you can is important but what's really going to make the change is attending protests um you know like putting pressure on major companies that have big carbon footprints and you know governments to um make change on a bigger level so coming up later this week and, and sort of the week of when this is being broadcast on april the 24th there is the Climate Live Canada uh, event taking place. And, and this is sort of a, a precursor to another event taking place in October around the COP24. So that, uh, just for our listeners' sake, that's the international gathering around uh, addressing the uh, climate change. So I think there's definitely a sense here of adding a bit of pressure to the Canadian government, namely the, uh, the, the current, currently the, the governing Liberals, to kind of take this seriously and you know i wonder you know the world today is not what it was in 2019 you know even this week the conservatives have announced their uh, um, carbon levy i use the word levy here in air quotes 
Um, you know, so if even the conservative seems to be taking this <laughs> somewhat seriously, what are you hoping to achieve with the Climate Life Canada? And can you tell us about what's going to happen during that event? Yeah, so Climate Live, the April event is going to be a live stream. We have Canadian artists from all over the country um, coming together for this live stream um, to play music, you know, related to climate or not, um, and just really, you know, say this is something that I care about and support it. Um, I think what's really unique about artists and musicians is that when an artist has a big platform, people connect to their music emotionally. And so they care about what those people are saying. And so when a musician says to their fans, hey, I care about this, you need to care about this, people are gonna be like, oh, well, this person like creates these songs that like connect to my emotion and like inspires me. So yeah, I'm gonna listen to what they say. And so I think the main, the main point is to both show the government, look at this big event with like influential people who care about this, but also just to get all the fans of those musicians engaged, um, in the climate movement um so that's that's the really the really big goal is just mobilization um and uh inspiration i guess um well i'm excited i will be tuning in on the 24th uh, some of the community radio broadcasters will be carrying it as well so don't forget to go to their website and check it out to see where they can find out the details uh, i want to thank you so much uh, bridget for not only uh, your your leadership in this and sort of uh, showing the way for how young folks can can get involved in, and make a change in the industries where they're at, but also for the incredible music that Moscow Apartment continue to create. Thank you. Thank you so much again, and we'll be back just after this.
everyone, welcome back to Canberra, home of Canada's Queer Media. My name is Luke Smith. Uh, my that, name is Sebastian. Sorry, Sebastian. That was <laughs> on a roll. That was Awful People by Moscow Apartment. And I want to thank Bridget again for taking the time to chat with me earlier today. Sorry, earlier this week. I'm getting all my days and times mixed up. We started off the show talking about the scathing report issued by George Epstein. Uh, in the Toronto Police Services investigations of uh, missing persons mm -hmm. from 2010 through to 2018. Well, they have, what was it, 200 odd recommendations from this report. I did notice that like the first 50 were related to the use of power case. Yeah, which I, I is that software that, that uh, <laughs> I was referring to earlier. The fact that you could interview somebody and then never write it. I mean, they wrote it down in their notepads, maybe, yep. but they never wrote it down anywhere where it could be searched, cross-referenced, identified, mm. found. Mm -hmm. Until you put it into a system that can be searched, cross-referenced, analyzed, they have all sorts of powerful AI tools now that that find things, and they have they have very 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 sensitive settings where I think it's designed to like if something may not be thing to just include it anyway. They have a whole bunch mm -hmm. of false positives because you you got to get your human eyeballs on it to be like oh no that's fine like but that's its design to be over-inclusive yeah. so that more people find these things and you get patterns better. And, and even then, yeah, nothing. And what astonishes me, this isn't just useful to jurisdictions like Peel or Ottawa or the other ones in the GTA, not that Ottawa's in the GTA, but it's useful to investigators in the same darn building. Yeah. And that's what's most frustrating is that all these investigations happen in the same building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, yeah. you know... Once one incident came up where one the new investigator, lead investigator for Project Prism, tweeted about the missing case of um, I think it was Andrew Kisman, and uh, somebody happened to see the tweet who was a previous investigator and sent sent this investigator a heads up about the other missing uh, missing man cases. You can't have a modern police force that's relying on one investigator tweeting at another investigator mm. and that investigator seeing it and responding. We can't have modern policing where one investigator tweets at another one and that's how you, you become aware of, of background information. It, yeah. is, it is ridiculous. I'm going to dive in on another topic here. I'm going to read from, uh, read from the report. Third, there was institutional resistance to the notion that these cases might be linked and that a serial killer might be preying on Toronto's LGBTQ2S plus communities. Mm. This systemic failure is perhaps the most troubling. Some officers understood fully why the disappearance of four gay and bisexual men might be related. Several officers reached out to Sergeant Dick to ensure that he was aware of the other cases. But it took several months for the service, Toronto Police Service, to decide to initiate Project Prism. And it only took place because Andrew Kisman went missing. I'm not convinced that the decision would have been made to have a task force or a project investigate all these disappearances if Mr. Kinsman had not gone missing. Indeed, even after Mr. Kinsman disappeared under suspicious circumstances, it took the service unwarranted time for that decision to be made. In my view, this decision was made primarily as a result of pressure from the public 
and those close to Mr. Kinsman, media coverage and advocacy from within the service. Mm. I want to move to the topic now of allegations of systemic homophobia, systemic racism mm. by the Toronto Police Service in their investigations of these murders. Mm -hmm. um, I think what the judge comes out with is, frankly, there isn't a huge amount of evidence that that's the case. But the thing is, you just need one person in a critical position who has a mild bias. And in a system as poorly organized as Toronto, one weak link just makes the whole thing fall apart. And I think that's what we saw, is that, that, that you needed that series of lucky handoffs where this person noticed something and told that person with their mouth, not with their advanced systems. And if in that chain of people handing the case off over the years, one person just neglected to mention the fact uh, because they didn't care. They didn't think it was relevant that, oh, yeah, by the way, a lot of these missing people are gay or bisexual. Um, that's all you need. You just need that one that that even if it's just a little bit of mild bias in some cases, which I think it's more than that, but I'm just saying for the sake of argument, with a system this poorly put together, that is enough to upset the whole thing and make the yeah. whole thing take 15 years instead of three. I think it's spot on. And, you know, Epstein goes on to say the intent to discriminate is not the issue. Mm. Proper missing persons investigation should not depend on whose voices are the loudest or most empowered to sound the alarm. Yeah, and yeah. I think what's worth noting is all of the previous cases of young queer brown men mm. weren't given much due. They weren't considered major cases, even though multiple factors indicated that they should be. Mm. They weren't taken seriously, so they weren't given the appropriate resources and investigative um, time and energy. Mm -hmm. But when Andrew Kinsman, a young white man, goes missing, his family and friends unleash an unholy media, uh, you know, assault to do a ground search. They, they put up posters. Mm -hmm. They make his disappearance undeniable to the Toronto Police Service. And I think that's what Epstein's referring to. You know, it shouldn't depend on who has the most privilege and access to loud, shouty friends to or have their case taken seriously. Or, or 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 their community. Like I think, I think one of the reasons why the men who are missing were targeted was because they do tend to be on the sort of the, they're less welcomed into the heart of the community. I mean, you describe them as as young brown men, but most of them are actually in their forties. Yeah. So there, there's a little bit of ageism, there's a little bit of racism within the gay community that they weren't really accepted in. So when they went missing, they had less of a community behind them who who noticed that they went missing because maybe they were less integrated into the social network. Maybe they had fewer friends. Maybe people just cared about them less because they weren't young and pretty. Um, there's a whole bunch of factors going on here about why the other, I mean, the connections were made and, and, and you know, the people noticed the pattern, but like individual cases, you really need to be a lot more integrated in order for that sort of thing to happen. Even here in Ottawa, there have been instances where um, when violence happens against members of the, the queer community, those, those who are more outgoing, more active, have more friends, who are more integrated into the community, they get a better reaction from the police because they have more people behind them, yeah. like eyes on the situation. Whereas 
I mean, we have mentioned in the past that there is a, a plague of loneliness among queer people, especially once they get past the age of 30, 35, that their, their social network shrinks over time and they become much more easy to victimize. So, I mean, there's a lot of issues going on here. And the fact that, yeah, it was somebody went missing who had friends with social media. That right there is a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of, I don't I wanna, know. I want to expand on your point here a little bit. Okay. And and I think the best way is to kind of read from, from this again, sort of page, page 61. Mm. Part of the problem was a lack of understanding of the gay community and its culture. This is the Judge Epstein's comments here. Right, yeah. The investigators had very limited knowledge of the gay community's dating websites, how gay men connected with each other, the mm. places they frequent, or the social interactions within the village. A wealth of relevant information never came to the attention of Project Houston investigators. Sidebar, mm. that's the one looking for a cannibal, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in part because they alleged were disconnected. Cannibal. An alleged cannibal. Yeah. <laughs> um, disconnected from the affected communities and ill-equipped to overcome barriers that may have inhibited some witnesses from coming forward. This is precisely what dis systemic discrimination entails. Yeah, the yeah, services yeah. practices, if not culture and structure, prevented it from most effectively investigating the disappearances of these missing men to the disadvantage of the loved ones and community. I think that sums it up right now, nailed it on the head. To be fair, there are zero gay men who are not also baffled by the gay community. Um, but they could have been less baffled if they had the help of people within the, the LGBT spaces. You know, that they, everyone, every single one of us is lost and confused, but there, it would have been mitigated by information. And I am kind of sympathetic to the fact because you do get like, you, you know, you get people on the ground, you get club owners, you get small business owners, you get activists, you get academics, you get people like you and I all have slightly different perspectives on what it means to be in the community. But to be fair, if they had any of them, any one of those angles, you know, like if, if they talk to a club kid who does GHB and goes to gangbangs or if they spoke to a professor of gender studies, they would have had any kind of useful information whatsoever. And they had none of that. Well, the judge does devote a whole chapter to the fact that apparently nobody talked to the Toronto Police Service's own LGBT community liaison officer, a sworn officer sort of, you know, centered in the village whose job it is, is to communicate with the community. And uh, apparently a lot of them were like, yeah, you know, we messed up. Like we should have, we should have reached out more. Um, I will note that on multiple occasions, Judge Epstein does comment that some of the officers did very good work. And I quote here, for example, on August 31st, 2017 and September 1st, 2017, excellent police work connected one of the people in Toronto who owned an early model red Dodge Caravan, MacArthur, to one of Mr. Kinsman's Facebook friends. So, I mean, the police at points did astonishing work. Mm -hmm. yeah. Whether or not they recorded it, wrote it down and shared it, that is a broader issue. Yeah. But... I don't know what the takeaway, I mean, clearly the takeaway here is the, uh, what are we looking at, 100 and 200 odd recommendations. I think that's definitely going to be 151 <laughs> recommendations, sorry. 
you know, that's definitely one big takeaway for the Toronto Police Service. We've learned that police in Toronto are afraid of keyboards. We've learned that Toronto Police seems to have a almost holier-than-thou approach to everything. Yeah. You know, they refuse to, to work effectively with partners such as the Peel Police, who gave them a connection on a plate. Mm. They didn't enter information into the provincial database that would have enabled other services such as OPP and OPS uh, to identify trends. You know, it is it is shocking and, and disheartening. And I hope that the shame that comes from this highly scathing report motivates Toronto Police Service to get its act together. I mean, if they were experienced, if they were capable of experiencing shame over this degree of disorder, do you think it would have happened in the first place? Like, I don't know if shame is the approach because I don't necessarily, well, certainly not the people in power. I, I think there are individual uh, administrators and officers, probably even a few people higher up, like probably people at the investigator level who are like, oh, dear God, this is embarrassing. But it got to this point because people in critical roles just don't mind. And I don't know if shame is the way to go. Like this, this might be the kind of thing where some external body needs to come in and, and shake them into shape, you know? What, what was evident is, you know, you, when you look at accountability, some of the first chapters talk about the fact that the Toronto Police Services Board had no idea that these major operations, Project mm. Houston and Project Prism, were even happening. You know, communication was just not there. The Toronto Police uh, very often didn't make these major cases into major cases because that would require more police time and effort. And this is another situation of to be fair, dot, 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 but, okay, to be fair, these investigations function better the fewer people who know about them. However, there are people in critical roles who didn't even know about them, and that yeah. is a bad sign. But my concern here is it seems to be a rule for everyone else and then a rule for Toronto Police Service. Mm. In the province of Ontario, there are multiple police services, the Ontario yeah. Police Service the Peel Regional Police, for example, just some that we mentioned today. Halton, and all of them have to abide by provincial regulations and standards, yep. including a set of criteria that when this criteria is met, a case is considered to be a major case. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, certain things have to happen. Mm -hmm. It has to be documented. The information has to be shared so that mm -hmm. it, you know, it can flag up things elsewhere. You know, all of these things have to happen. But TPS, frankly, didn't do it. Mm. And, and that's the issue here. It's not an issue with policing or infrastructure policies or regulations. It's an issue with Toronto Police Servicing just opting out of provincial standards in policing. And, and it's disgraceful. And I think that, you know, they need to be shaken up. Maybe this is something that the, the province needs to take a look at mm. for why they have a wayward police service not following regulations. Yeah. Well, yeah. on that note... <laughs> Do we have any other news that we could be talking about? We we don't. I, I think we've we've hit nearly the end of the show. I did uh, want to alert users, uh, users, and any listeners, anyone who is using the app Manhunt. It is a great hookup app. Yeah, uh, you should go and check out. Make sure that your data, your service information hasn't been stolen, as hackers were able to steal thousands of users' accounts. Uh, mm. recently um it was in uh, the issue was filed in a notice recently um 
this doesn't surprise me. The number of gay apps that get hacked is is shameful. Yeah, actually, I heard this some time ago, and I haven't heard any follow up. But there was a an attempt at doing a I don't remember if it was GoFundMe or Patreon or what, but it was one of those like uh, uh, throw your money into a hack kind of situations where uh, people were trying to raise money to purchase Grinder back from the Chinese government so that they could like improve service and improve security and you know alter the site to actually be more reflective of the kinds of things that people use the site for instead of just making it an advertising nightmare uh and i haven't heard anything about the direction it's going in order to buy that app though they would they would need several million so even if it was going well it would probably take about a year and a half couple years to make it happen unless you got like some kind of like bezos or elon musk kind of you know, angel investor. It's going to take a while. Um, but actually, it's it's because of the this case out of Toronto over the past 10 years that I, in particular, insist that whenever I hear about anything to do with people using dating or social media apps in order to target victims, to locate and target victims, I always insist on sharing it because there are a lot of people within the community who don't know that you know, honeypots and robberies and, and murders and assaults. Black extortion is a big one. Extortion, extortion is, huge. is a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To protect yourself when you're on these sites because things happen and, and sometimes people don't notice or don't care. So you, you got to, I mean, it's an issue of like, I don't believe in blaming victims, but front doors have locks on them. So do what you can and making sure that you use these apps in a responsible manner is definitely something that you need to do in order to protect yourself. So, Well, on that equally as cheerful note, um, right? <laughs> we've been playing out with Big Gay Hands by Partner. I've been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening.
Thank you.